Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. There's a handout in the bulletin as well. It goes along with what I'm going to be preaching this morning. Does anyone need a copy of that? A couple extra left up here. Alright, it will help you if you have that this morning. We're taking a bigger section and sometimes when we go through bigger sections it's helpful to just kind of have some some hooks that we can hang our our thoughts on here. And so that's what I want to do with this outline. As well, on the back of it is a nice colorful picture for you. And um, this is what I was talking about last week with regard to how we relate to the Old Testament law. I began last week by saying that the, the Ten Commandments are not for Christians. They're actually designed for Old Testament Israel. And here's how we ought to think about the law. Okay, The law of Christ that we are under as Christians did not develop out of the law of Moses. Like God had designed the law of Moses and it didn't quite work and people didn't obey it properly, so He kind of changed it and expanded it. And now that's what we are under. And so then we, we kind of go back to the Old Testament. We dip into these things and find out what we have responsibilities for. Uh, certainly there are lots of principles that we can gain from those things, from those laws of Moses, but not because, not because of that, not because it developed out of the law of Moses, but rather that, that it, both of these laws are an expression of God's law or God's desire. If we want to know what God thinks about something and what He desires for His people, you can look at it in two expressions. One, the law of Moses, and two, the law of Christ. And we are under the law of Christ. And so that doesn't mean that the law of Moses is of no value. If it was of no value, I wouldn't be preaching on it. Um, the Old Testament is valuable for us. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, right? So all Scripture is profitable for us. And uh, God has provided it for us to learn from it. And so we can gain great value from it. We can learn principles from that and even see illustrations of what some of the New Testament laws are supposed to look like. So we can go back to the Old Testament and look at them in that way. Well, so far in our study of Exodus, we've come across the idea of worship just dozens of times. God has been delivering Israel out of Egypt, and at this point in chapter 20, Israel is delivered from Egypt, and the purpose for it was so that they would worship God. And this is what section of the text we are in. We are in the worship section. The first half of the book is about God's deliverance, and God delivered them so that they would worship. And what does worship look like? And that's really what we're trying to answer here in the second half of the book. The way that worship is expressed, as I mentioned last week, is through obedience to God's covenant. In Exodus 19, God set up this covenant with Israel, and if they were faithful, then God was going to make them into a holy nation. And He would set them apart for His purposes. And so He meets with them at Mount Sinai. Remember, they said to God, all that you say we will do. That is, we agree to this covenant. We have agreed to the terms of this covenant. And so once they did, Moses ascends to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and which I believe are really a summary of all the commandments. They have to do with, remember the first part, Israel's relationship with God. Don't have any other gods. Um, don't make any idols. Make sure you don't profane My name. And then... 
Israel's relationship with one another. Commandments 5-10. through 10, Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. So on. Alright? And those really are a summary of all the law. Now we get into more of the specifics. The more detailed account of the covenant. And, and that's what we're going to find here in these uh, several chapters that we're going to look at this morning. And I would break this down, as you can see on your outline there, into two sections. Okay, first, God's expectation. Then if you look at the back of your handout, God's promise. God's expectation and God's promise. So what does God expect of the people? And then what should the people expect of God? God has promised them something and, and they ought to recognize that this will serve as a mot- motivation for them, that He's going to provide for them and direct them. Now, in two weeks, we'll see uh, in chapter 24 that Israel ratifies or reaffirms this covenant. They, they reaffirm their willingness to obey the law in its entirety. So let me pick up where we left off last week, chapter 20, verse 22, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 22. This is the Word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me. Gods of silver, gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, your oxen and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up, to my, uh, go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. I think this week uh, we're going to see in this passage a similar point that, that we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, and that is that the essence of true worship is living life God's way. It's living life God's way. So if we're going to live life God's way, then we should not be surprised that God has certain expectations for us. And that's what He gives to Israel. That He expects several things of them. Number one, God expects His people to worship Him exclusively. Right? This is what we saw in the Ten Commandments. The very first two commandments, or actually the first commandment, verse 3 of chapter 20, you shall have no other gods, and literally, before my face. And since I see all things don't have any other gods. And so God expects that His people worship Him exclusively. Now we know a little bit more about what that is, because as we just read in chapter 20, verses 22-26, through 26, a more detailed explanation of the law, God here begins and ends or begins with worshiping Him exclusively. And what we're going to see is when we get to chapter 23, He's going to end with that same idea. That as I tell you about my expectations, God is saying, my expectations for you, Israel, I'm going to begin with how you ought to view Me. And it begins with worship. God wanted Israel and their worship of Him to be distinguished from the worship of false gods. Right, that, that you have been set apart by Me as a special people. And He wanted them to know that He was going to be everywhere. In verse 24, He talks about an, put, whenever you have an altar, in every place where you set up an altar. In other words, I am everywhere. I'm not confined to one place like these false gods. That God is, 
is uh, is everywhere and, and He is over them, uh, over all of them. Number two, okay, first, God expects His people to worship Him exclusively. Number two, and here's a larger section, God expects His people to treat others with fairness. So now He moves from, remember, His relationship with God like He does in the, in the first four commandments, now to uh, Israel's relationship with each other. How ought they to relate to one another? And so he, he begins with laws regarding fairness to servants, verses 1 through 11. And I'm not, I'm not going to read this section, but basically you need to treat your Hebrew slaves well. Now, a slave is not what we think of as a slave. Uh, a slave in, in the Bible is not the same as what we think of in our country's history. In the Old Testament, a slave was a person who actually willingly entered into a formal contract with his slave owner. And he did this because uh, he was trying to, to guard himself or put himself into a better position economically. It could be because he stole something and he had to, to make restitution for that. And in order for him to make restitution, he would, he would uh, agree to to serve a certain master. It could be that he had to pay a debt, a debt that he couldn't, he couldn't pay on his own. And so he agrees to enter into service for the, the master. It could be that he just needed room and board in, time, in a time of distress. Maybe there was some family crisis and, and maybe they lost some of their inheritance or something. And the man just decided, you know what, I need to go and work for. So it's probably more akin to our, our formal contracts that we enter into in most cases, at, at, an, at our place of employer, right? We, we as employees, enter into a, a, an agreement. I agree to do this for you if you agree to do this for me. And that's how these relationships generally were handled. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 21, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years. But on the seventh, you shall let him go free. Now, we're going to find out later that in, in uh, Leviticus, there's also a time every 49 years when there would be a, a year of Jubilee where all slaves were freed of their debt and were allowed to go back to their, to their original land that was allotted to them. But, but, but apparently, God is setting up this standard even early. Listen, you should only allow them to work for you for six years and then you need to let them go free. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the servant actually does have um, he does have responsibility. He has a choice here. Verse 5, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the, or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Does that sound, sound like something that the slave is being forced into? No, he says, No, I love my master. I want to serve him. I want to stay here. And, and work for him. And so the slave had rights. And so, so I would say that slavery in the Old Testament would be similar, similar to, but not the same, as an employee today. Now, that doesn't mean that all masters treated their servants well. Many, as you can imagine, abused their power. But in general, slaves were happy to be in the service of their masters because the alternative was, well, what would happen if you owed money or if you were without food? What was the alternative? It was destitution or death, right? And and there were there were no um, governmental programs or anything like that that would help provide for them. 
Um, and so that's why uh, God was very much concerned about how masters treated their slaves. So first, laws regarding fairness to servants. And then laws regarding family, the family member of slaves in verses 7 through 11. Here, God's protecting the daughters of those who are sold as a lesser wife. So think of uh, Bilhah or Zilpah, some of these um, what, what are called concubines, these lesser wives. They're basically just there for, for procreation purposes, just to give the father more children. And God was trying to protect against that by saying that, that, um, that, that there needs to be fairness involved when, when these transactions take place. Um, in verse 7, if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she's not to go free as the male slaves do. If she's displeasing in the eyes of her master who, designed, who designated her for herself, and he shall not let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people. In other words, the, the rights of this woman still belong to her father. And um, unless the man actually put up and uh, paid for the bride price, the dowry, then, then he didn't really have rights to her. God is protecting these daughters. Next, we see laws related to other people. Chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. God is protecting the society in general. Here in verses 12 to 14, He's talking about premeditated murder versus involuntary killing. That, that, that God is saying, listen, there's, there, if, if you murder someone, there is no refuge for you. Someone who acts out in premeditated malice, there is no refuge for you, even at the altar. Notice verse 14, If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor, so as to kill him craftily, in other words, murder, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. So the, the, the state, okay, the, the state of Israel had the right to take the life of someone who committed murder. The altar was not even a place of refuge for them. In verse 15, we see a, uh, what should happen if someone tries to attack their parents. Verse 15, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. The word strike is the same word that's used in verse 12. Notice verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the parents die. It just means that if you attack your parents, and I would say even if they don't die, then that is a serious sin in the eyes of God. Sometimes we try to put all sins on the same level, and I think Part of it is because we have a society that minimizes some sins. Well, you know, it was only a little white lie. It's not that big of a deal. This sin was, I didn't murder anybody. And so we have a, a society that categorizes sins. And so we try to put them all on the same plane and say, well, you know, before God's eyes, all of your sins, your white lie is actually a sin that's enough to put you into hell. And in that sense, it's true. But I think when we do that, sometimes we just stay over there and we just say that all sins are the same in God's eyes, which is not actually true. It is true that each sin that we commit will punish, you know, cause us, bring about on us the judgment that it deserves. But I hope you recognize that some sins require greater judgment. Right? That there is a blackest darkness in hell. There is a a more severe part of hell that, that will be reserved for certain people because of the various kinds of sins that they commit, whether it be blasphemy or, or murder or whatever it is. But, but here, we, we have an idea here in the law of Moses within the state of Israel that 
God actually punished certain sins more severely than others. If you attacked your neighbor, you would get one sort of consequence. But if you attacked your parents, then you'd be put to death. So in that sense, God does take some sins more seriously than others because He punishes them that way. In verse 16, God was not only concerned about how slaves were treated, but He was concerned about how slaves were acquired. Right? You couldn't just go kidnap someone and say, hey, here's my slave. I'm going to make him my slave. No, that God didn't allow that. Verse 16. Verse 17, the verbal abuse of parents. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So not only was God concerned about the physical abuse of parents, the striking or attacking of parents, but God was also concerned with the verbal abuse. And both of them were punishable by death. Because why? It's a direct violation of the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. Verses 18 to 21, we have injuries that don't result in death. God gave certain laws for those. Verses 22 to 27, laws regarding permanent injury, even accidental. Look at verse 24, for example. This is one we're familiar with. We'll start with verse 23. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for, for bruise. We tend to look at these verses and think that this is some kind of barbaric form of intimidation, that if you knocked out a person's tooth because you were just mad at them and you just slugged them, then Moses was going to require one of your, tooth to, one of your teeth to be removed. Um, or if you cut off someone's hand, then Moses would make sure that you would have your hand cut off. I don't think that's what the intent was, and the reason I think that is because there's no indication in the rest of the Old Testament that that happened at all. Now, I'm not talking about the life-for-life life part. The life-for-life life part, that, that was something that was, was carried out. And the reason I know that is because Genesis 9-6 says, If you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. That's the idea of capital punishment. That the government has the right to take a person's life if they've committed murder. All right, And, and we have that taking place in, even in our own country in some states. They allow for that, and I think rightfully so, that God has given them that authority to be able to make that choice. And Israel, in the same way, did that. And the reason I think that that is a principle for us is because it's part of the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 repeats that idea, that that the government has the right to bear the sword. They do not carry the sword in vain, it says. So they have that right to take a person's life if there has been a murder committed. But I don't think that this is calling for a barbaric um, kind of one-for-one correspondence or or transaction that if you take something from someone, then that's going to be taken from you. Rather, I think that the courts had the right in the time of Israel, the courts had the, the right to require of you restitution that was consistent with what you took from them. So, for example, if you took both of their hands and they were a craftsman, for example, and, and now they're no longer able to do their work, then the court's not going to require that both of your hands be taken, but instead they're going to make you pay remuneration that would be consistent with how much you took from him. And so I think that's more consistent with what took place in the Old Testament. In verses 28 to 36, we have laws about injuries and animals. Um, 
God was showing the people that they're responsible for their own animals. If there was a dangerous animal like an ox or something and he gores a person, then you actually could have your life taken from you. And it wasn't enough just to protect other people from your dangerous animals, but also you are not allowed to um, uh, be negligent. Look at verse uh, 33. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it over, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. So in other words, if you open up a pit and you don't put protective barriers around it and somebody else's animal falls into it and dies, then you have to pay for that. You can't just be negligent and just say, well, you know, that's their problem. They need to watch out for themselves. God's saying, listen, you have a responsibility to to guard yourself and other people around you. And uh, so he took the, the, um, the, the understanding of personal property very seriously. In chapter 22, we have property rights or laws about property. And there are laws about how you restore. If you have, if you have stolen something, there are four laws about that in verses 1 through 4. And then uh, two laws about paying restitution for damage caused by negligence. If you have a loose animal that just goes out into a field and starts eating all your harvest, well then, or someone else's harvest, then there are laws that uh, cover that. If there's a careless fire that wrecks another field, verse 6, then there are laws about that. Verses 7 to 15, laws regarding property disputes. Right? What happens when a person borrows someone else's possession and then the item gets lost or stolen? Has your neighbor ever done that to you? Hey, they, they borrowed something from you and you're like, hey, where's my, where's my hammer? Where's my lawnmower or whatever? And, and that, oh, I'm really sorry, I got broken. So, you know, you'll probably have to get a new one. No, that's not how it works, right? We understand that, that there should be, uh, that that person who borrowed that, one of the things that my dad hated when I was growing up was borrowing other people's things because he always knew that he was responsible that if anything got broken that he was going to have to pay. And usually... Um, you know, it was usually nice things, and so he's like, "No, if we don't have it, we're not going to we're not going to borrow it." And I think that principle is just drawn from the same common sense type of thinking that God was helping Israel with here. Not that it wrong it's wrong to borrow, but if you do break something or it gets lost or stolen, that you have a responsibility to to pay for it. Um, in verse nine, it tells Israel what should be done to a person who lies about being robbed and essentially steals from their neighbor. Notice chapter 21, verse 9. I'm sorry. It should be chapter 20, 22, verse 9. Chapter 22. Verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judge by whom the judge condemns uh, uh, he whom the judge condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So if you're saying, uh, you know, uh, really sorry that that um, that uh, that I was robbed or that that something was taken, and your your neighbor ends up paying you back for something that really wasn't taken, then then the judge, when they find out the truth, will make you pay double. Verses 16 and 17 laws about the bride price. If an unmarried couple had consensual sex, he had to pay the bride price as if he were marrying her. Because now, for the father, 
she has been compromised in her purity. And who's going to want to marry her now? Right? So if a, if a man seduces a woman in that way, then he is responsible to pay the bride price, which in general was usually several years of wages. Do you remember how much it was for Jacob when he wanted to marry Rachel? How many years was it? Seven years. And then obviously he was tricked the first time and so he had to pay another seven years in order to to um, to get uh, Rachel as his wife. So I don't, I don't know if you've thought about the numbers for yourself, but but that's how much that, that guys, we should have paid our father-in-law for, for our wives, right? Uh, seven years of wages. It's amazing to, to think. But th- that's what God's protecting against. Listen, they have that coming to them. That father has that coming to them. And, you know, in our day, it's actually the opposite, right? The father doesn't get any money. He has to spend money on the wedding, right? But, um, but he, to protect the father against that sort of thing, that, that a, a man just comes in, seduces his daughter, and then basically leaves her in a compromised position that, that God says, listen, if you're going to do that, you still need to pay the Father. Okay? You, need, you need to make restitution. So, in verses, uh, in, in this section so far, with regard to sins that are committed against other people, what I, what I noticed going through here is that there is no imprisonment. Did you ever think about that? In, in the Old Testament, you do have imprisonment that happens uh, in some cases with even Israel goes into captivity. But in general, with, with, as far as God's law is concerned, there's no imprisonment. And there are several advantages to having no prison. Um, instead, making immediate restitution. I think there are some drawbacks as well. But, but Douglas Stewart in his commentary notes that there are four advantages to having no imprisonment in the Mosaic Law. First, it provided immediate and generous restitution to the victim. So if someone was sinned against, instead of them going off somewhere and being incarcerated, uh, basically isolated from society, instead he had to pay you back for what was taken from you or what was what kind of damage was done to you. Second, it required the offender to face the victim directly. right? Because that person, when he sinned against you, would have to come back to you and make payments to you. Third, it allowed a repentant offender to continue on with a productive, a productive life after making restoration. I don't know if you've ever considered this for yourself, but if you committed a crime and had to be uh, put in prison for a time, and then you tried to get back in a right standing with society, right? it's difficult to do. It's difficult to make restoration, yet in the Old Testament society it was good because it allowed you to, to get back on with your life after making restoration. Fourth, it alleviated the society from the burden of housing, feeding, and clothing of criminals. Which, if you know anything about our country, you know that we are spending tens of thousands of dollars per person per year uh, in order to house and clothe and feed them. Now, the disadvantages of not confining criminals was, uh, as you can imagine, the richer the criminal, the easier it is to commit crimes. I don't know if you've ever heard about these athletes who just like racing down the expressway as fast as they can their sports car because they think, hey, I can afford it. You know, if they're going to give me a ticket, I can afford it. It's no big deal, right? So, but but if you think about that on a larger scale, something more severe than speeding, that that um, there could be some serious ramifications if you have a rich person who just wants to go out and commit crimes and then pay off whoever he has to pay. Thankfully, in our society, rich people don't get away with murder. Except for a few, right? 
I, I'm thinking of O.J. Simpson. You might be thinking of someone else as well. But, but uh, it still happens, unfortunately. But, but in general, um, that, that's a huge problem if you don't have some kind of prison system. And then the second disadvantage is that a person who is non-repentant could be restored with the offender and then go out and commit the same crime again, right? So that's a problem. Then you have all these criminals who are out there. So I'm not arguing that we get rid of our prison system. I think what it tells us uh, is that in this society, without the prison system, there were problems, right? There were problems. There were people who abused it. And in our society, with the prison system, there are problems. So what does that tell us? That there's one correct means for which, by which we should uh, handle all criminals? No. Instead, what it tells us is that the sin problem that we have is severe. And it cannot be handled by one government that is, that is uh, put together by sinful men. In fact, we need someone who is the perfect governor to handle our, uh, to, to handle our sin and to, to judge our sin. And that's what's going to happen, by the way. When Jesus comes in the kingdom, He will be the perfect governor, the perfect ruler, and He will handle all sin swiftly and severely. Uh, people who act out in open sin will, will die. All right, number three. We need to keep moving here. God expects His people to avoid actions that will lead people away from true worship. Let me just draw your attention to these verses, verses 18 to 20. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Here in verses 18 to 20, God is purging Israel of people who will keep others from turning to the true and living God. Because... Do you know what kind of actions these describe? These describe actions of the Egyptians from whom God just rescued them and from the Canaanites from whom God will rescue them. He's saying, listen, the reason I destroyed Egypt and the reason I destroyed Canaan is because they are godless people. And that's what I'm drawing you out of. I'm changing you. I'm making you to be different from them. So don't be doing anything that draws people away. These are the most profane things that could ever happen in life. The, the, the most godless acts of sin to be committed. And God's saying, don't do those things because those will actually lead other people away from serving Me, the true and living God. And so God allowed for, for the government, that is, the, the government of Israel here, to put them to death in several ways, but He would not allow these things to go on. Number four, God expects His people not to take advantage of the weak. Verses 21 to 27. Here God's making sure that Israel shows love to their neighbor. Um, Israel, of all people, should know what it's like to be weak and powerless. Notice verse 21. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Right? The people who we could most easily take advantage of would be the people who are vulnerable and weak. The, the orphans, the widows, the strangers, the foreigners, people who aren't from around here. We could take advantage of, of them very easily. And God's saying, don't do that. Why? Because that's who you once were. Don't you remember what it was like when you were in Egypt? So God expects His people not to take advantage of the weak. Number five, God expects His people to take His holiness seriously. Verses 28-31. to 31. You shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay an offering 
from your harvest and your vintage. Firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And he goes on. Verse 31, you shall be holy to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Give what belongs to God and don't loathe worshiping God. Number, f- number six, sixth expectation of God is that God expects His people to treat others with honesty and justice. Chapter 23, verses 1-9. to Treat others with honesty and justice. Here is in some ways a summary. I think really these nine verses are a summary of chapter 20, verse 16, which is, you shall not bear false witness to your neighbor. So what does that look like, God? What, what does it mean to bear, bear false witness about our neighbor? Well, it is, it is uh, treating them with fairness. Verse 1, you shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. In other words, don't come up, collude with other people and make up ideas that, that aren't true in order to get someone else condemned. Notice verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Isn't this amazing? That even your enemy, if, if your enemy has an animal that wanders onto your field, it's not yours. Okay, finders are not keepers, God says. If someone's animal wanders onto your field, even if it's your enemy, you need to return it to him. Why? Because this is what you would want them to do to you. And you are different from they. You are, are different from them. So, so you need to return this to them. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, in other words, his, your enemy... If you see him lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. So take special care of, of the possessions of other people, even if they are your enemies. And then number seven, God expects His people to remember Him and His works. God concludes here the section on expectations with a, a discussion of Sabbath years and Sabbath days. That, that the pattern of work should be six on and one off. That is, six days of work and then one day of rest. And six years of, of work and one year of rest. And that was uh, what He designed for Israel. So they would constantly be remembering that God was the one who was providing for them. That their fields were supposed to do this. Um, that they were supposed to, to, um, to follow this, this pattern so that they would remember that God did the same thing. That He worked six and then he rested on the seventh. And then in verses 13 and 17, that he, he expects them to come to these three main feasts. The Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Harvest, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And these were all reminders that God was the one who provided for them. The Feast of Ingathering and the Feast of Harvest, that God provided for them, and that God delivered them. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. you know what was going on during the Feast of Tabernacles? what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to live in tents. And, and they were supposed to do this for several days as they would be reminded of how God had brought them out of Egypt. And they had to, to leave in a hurry and so on. And so God's reminding of them, them of their deliverance. So we have an explanation of God's expectation for Israel. And, and He lays it out in this covenant. And it all comes down to worshiping Him properly by treating Him with honor and, and treating others with love. And so that's the expectation that God has for them. So notice what we, or what Israel should expect of God. 
in chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. And this is God's promise. Okay, This is what the people should expect of God. This is a covenant. It's a two-way agreement. You know, like when we come into a marriage covenant, we agree to do something for the other person. The other person agrees to do something for us. Same thing with Israel and God. It's a covenant in that way, in that Israel agrees to do something and God agrees to do something. And here's what He agrees to do. Verse 20, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before Him and obey His voice. Voice, Do not be rebellious toward Him, for He will not pardon your transgression since My name is in Him. But if you truly obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So here's what God's saying. is I'm going to provide for you the land that, that I have promised to your forefather Abraham. So I'm going to send an angel before you, the angel of the Lord that meets Joshua. If you remember at the end of Deuteronomy, beginning of Joshua, the angel of the Lord meets him there. And, and he prepares the way and he's the one who sends the hornet ahead of them to destroy people in battle. He, he, in verse 23 of this chapter, tells us that he will destroy the enemies. God will destroy the enemies in Canaan. So God's saying, listen, if you agree to do all these things, these expectations that I've given you, chapters 20 through 22, then here's what I will agree to do to you. I will deliver you into a place where you are able to destroy Canaan. And God's saying, listen, if you will just trust me, if you will believe in me, if you will obey me, then I will give you what you need. Because without me, God's saying, you are nothing. And you can do nothing. And you will end up as nothing. And yet with God, they will, they will fulfill the purposes that He has promised for them. So let me just leave, leave you with two points here in application. First, the essence of true worship to God is living life God's way. There is no way around the fact that God has determined how Israel ought to live in every aspect of life. And I think the same thing is true with us. That God has delivered us from our greatest enemies and He has promised to deliver us from our greatest enemies that are ahead of us. For Israel, it was Egypt and Canaan. For us, it is, it is our enslavement to sin and from Satan from destroying us, Right? From, both from those who God has delivered us from and from those whom He will deliver us. And so, we must do nothing less than to worship Him. And to worship Him means to live our life God's way. Thankfully, we don't have to guess at what God wants. He's told us what He wants to do, us to do in His Word. And, and so, we could helpfully break down our worship into two main categories how we live in our relationship with God and how we live in our relationship with other people. And God, in His Word, has given us expectations for both. What does God expect us to do when it comes to our relationship with Him? And then He's told us also, what does God expect us to do when it comes to our relationship with other people? The essence of true worship is living life God's way. So that means we need to go into His Word and find out what He wants for us. Secondly, True worship involves all of life. If you're going to worship God, then you must make all of your life about worship. You must make all of your life about obeying God. You may think that, you know, coming to church is a big sacrifice for me. 
And, it, and that if I'm going to give to God, then, then, I, then He can have my Sundays. But then I'm going to live how I want on Monday through Saturday. But did you notice that these laws and the rest of the laws of Israel govern how they live their lives, not just on their day of worship, Saturday, but at every part of life. How you treat your neighbors, how you speak of God the rest of the week, how you think of God, right? how you worship God throughout the rest of the week. And I think the same principle is true in the New Testament for us as well. That we, God doesn't expect for us just to give Him one day. Romans 12 says that we offer our bodies, our whole lives as living sacrifices, which is really our holy and acceptable service to Him. It's a reasonable thing that we can do. We are not under the law as Israel was, but we are under the law of Christ. And it's laid out for us in the epistles and in much of the teachings of Jesus. And so we have for us what God expects of us. That He expects from Sunday to Sunday, to Sunday, every day, all year long, every year, that all of our lives ought to be of worship to Him. He doesn't want us to compartmentalize our lives and say, well, there's my religious part. And now here's my normal you know, work and home and recreation part. No, God thinks worship ought to be all of life. Yes, there ought to be a focused time of worship here where we gather together with other believers and we covenant together about what we will do for God and what we and we learn from his word. Yes, there ought to be that. But all of the rest of our life ought to be worship as well. And so that means that we need to be willing to submit ourselves in every area of life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would humble us now by revealing to us places in which we have held back from You. Lord, we, we want to hold nothing back because we believe that, that You do, do deserve all of our lives. What if You served us the way that we served You? What if You only gave us part of Yourself and You only were faithful to us part of the time? Lord, we're grateful that it, that is not the case and that could never be because You are a loving and faithful God and, and You really display love in the way that it ought to be displayed. But Lord, we are prone to wander and we are prone to make excuses and to justify the other areas of our lives. And so we need Your help. We need to depend upon You and that's why we come to You now in prayer asking for You to, to um, transform us, to, to metamorphosize us to be like Jesus Christ constantly changed into His image through the Word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.